Thanks for joining us for the next episode of the Anti-Failure Podcast. We're here to tell stories of small business owners who have embraced failures along the journey and help them ultimately reach success. I'm host Chris Kendall, and I'm joined today by Matthew Brown. Matt started his career as a PE teacher and moved into wealth management. He's the founder of Your Corner 360, a boutique wealth and financial advisory firm, and he is the co-host of the Rebellious Investor podcast. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your journey and what you've been doing so far? Yeah, thanks for the invitation to come on. So my journey, it's been quite interesting. I say in life, I've got a couple of different roles. My most important role is being a father, followed very closely by being a husband and then an entrepreneur. And really my goal in life is to help as many people as possible achieve their success in life, whatever that means. I'm a very firm believer in the more people that you can help achieve their success, the more success that will flow into your own life. Yeah. So talk a little bit about how you help people on that journey. What have you helped them pivot and course correct? Mate, so in the early days, I guess, uh, at heart, I'm a teacher. So I was a PE teacher, so I studied at university and I just got stuck in front of 30 kids thinking, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Yep. And then met a young gentleman. I got into mortgage broking. He yep. was making my annual salary in under a month. I was doing right. bookkeeping. So I went back yep. to university and was doing a master's degree in accounting. That's how I sort of my foray into finance. Didn't finish that initially. I met Paul and then he introduced me to mortgage broker. I didn't even know what a mortgage broker was then. And I quit my cushy PAYG New South Wales education role as a PE teacher yeah. and started mortgage broking on a Monday. And then away I went. That was in the wild days of zero education. You just literally turn up, get your accreditations and start writing loans and figure it out. So going back to that moment where you were thinking, you know, I'm here as PE teacher, but there's something else out there. Can you describe what that was like? What was it that was calling you over to something else? A drive to make money. Okay. Yeah. I initially left the education department because I couldn't see a future for me to be able to earn enough money to sustain the lifestyle that I envisaged I wanted. Right. So I was looking for something else. And that was really the main driver. But interestingly, when I went for an interview in this mortgage breaking firm, I actually did a Myers-Briggs test. Oh, right. Yep. And it came out and told me that I'm a people person. I'm a people pleaser. Yep. I like people to love me and I'm also, I'm a salesperson at heart. Yep. So I was a mortgage broker yep. and in this particular firm, we had a strong focus on assisting people buy investment properties. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of 22, 23 years old, teaching yep. adults, people my parents' age, how to restructure home loan, refinancing, accessing equity and how they can free up that capital and cash flow to be able to afford to invest and buy investment properties. So I did that for sort of five or six years, built up a large client base and a lot of clients. And then a lot of my clients just pre-GFC, the government brought out this initiative where they were, you could get a million dollars into superannuation. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my clients, um, after seeking some financial advice, sold a lot of these investment properties, put their money into super, and then the stock market crashed. Right. So at that particular point, I then realized that there's got to be more to this whole wealth creation mm -hmm. strategy because we did so much hard. We did all the hard work. We made the money and then it went down the gurgler. Yeah. So thinking about that, the observation you had was these guys are following a, a methodology or a, a strategy to try and make money. Things didn't work. So rather than keep doing the same, think of different solutions. Is that how you were using those failings? Yeah. So I initially sort of... Uh, met, met, another, met another gentleman and he sort of introduced me to being able to invest in property through real estate investment trusts and other like very general advice type strategies. Yep. And they were working really well, uh, mainly because in a property investing career, there's two main things that you require. But the first thing is capital. So you need the deposit or equity and then you need serviceability. Mm -hmm. And then typically you'll go in leaps and bounds. So you'll buy one, maybe two, but then you're sort of stuck because you either don't have enough serviceability or you've run out of equity or both. Yep. But you might still have some surplus capital or you've still got some surplus equity there um, or, or income to be able to service an additional investment. So what do we actually do with that? So that was sort of what I was searching for. Okay. Um, and then when I got into the investment, talking about investments in that, that was where my passion really came about. Because yep. as a mortgage broker, realistically, all of your clients want to do one of two things. They want to buy a principal place residence, upgrade, yep. Yep. downsize, but it's around that, or they want to buy an investment property. So you're really stuck in just that spot. When you open up and start talking about investments, you talk about, tell me what your life looks like 10 years from today. Paint mm -hmm. me that picture. Yeah. And then from there, I put together a strategic plan for you to now enjoy that in the future. 
Interesting. So you're helping them effectively define or, or the strategy that they want to get to create the lifestyle, right? So as you're working through that, how do you then take the information that comes across? Let's say the strategy isn't working the same way. How do you help them course correct or pivot or, or do things differently? To be honest with you, most Aussies haven't really had a deep thinking around what their goals are. The majority of people are meandering through life, yep. just getting through the day to day, the week to week. Yep. And because we've all, we live in a very affluent country, there's not really a huge focus on creating huge amounts of financial security to enjoy time freedom. You know, we've got the, it'll be okay, she'll be right sort of attitude. The yep. majority of Aussies are sort of on that sort of track. They're just going along through the paces. And when I ask the majority of people, new clients, that particular question, it's actually something they need to go away and think about because they don't really have a clear picture of what their life looks like mm -hmm. 10 years from today. Yep. And look, if you don't have a target, it's near impossible to hit. Right. So it's really about, a big part of my job is really about getting them to define what that life, perfect life looks like in the future. Yep. And then breaking that down into three-year goals, 12 months, 90-day plans, yep. and then executing that. And then measuring along that journey. Just keeping them on track. Right. Right. So... Can you think of examples where you've seen or perhaps anticipated a failure coming and, and how have you used that then to course correct or, or think about things differently? So for the majority of clients, my, my job is to actually keep them on track. So my role is really as a bit of a sounding board where a client will come back to me and say, hi, I really want to upgrade my home. Yep. They might be in their like mid fifties. I'm like, okay, great. So you want to upgrade from the two and a half million dollar house to the six million dollar house. Okay. You're going to increase your home loan to three and a half million dollars. Yep. How are you going to pay that off in the next 10 years? Cause you've told me you want to retire mm -hmm. at 60, 63. Right. And then when you have that discussion with them, they're like, ah, oh, okay. Maybe the $6 million house is not necessarily what I need. Right. It's what I want. Yep. It'd be great. Yeah. But do I actually need that? And is that going to give me fulfillment in life? So those types of discuss I have those discussions on a daily basis with people. Interesting. And then so what my role is, is to then take the emotional want mm -hmm. of, I want that house and then break it down into the actual numbers and relate it back to the goals that they've already specified of this is where we're going right. and then show them the data. So then they can make, I guess, a unemotional decision about that. So it's a, it's a combination of strategy. It's a combination of measurement. And, a convers a, and conversations along the way. Correct. And look, when you're investing in any type of public ma public market investments, you have a lot of volatility. So it's about managing people's emotions through that investment cycle, keeping people invested in the asset allocation that we know is going to get them where they're going to go. Right. You mentioned earlier that you're a teacher. I think uh, it certainly resonates for me because you know my role in our business and the journey that we're on is to help bring opportunities to people who who turn up and bring their skills, experience, and desire for us to move along their career. Talk about how you use your teaching skills in a way that helps your clients achieve their success. So financial literacy is a pretty low bar in Australia. Mm -hmm. Most people understand generally how money works. Mm -hmm. They go to work, it comes into their bank account, and then they spend it. Yeah, but hopefully less than what they've earned in each month. That's the goal, definitely. But then in terms of how money works, in terms of interest rates, inflation, the Reserve Bank, that sort of broader economic theory around how money works, people really are not that clued up on it. Right. So my role is to provide people with enough information in little bits so that they're comfortable making investments into assets that they now understand. Mm -hmm. Or they understand the investment theory behind why we stick to as per particular asset allocation at a particular age. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So switching focus back to you're the PE teacher, there was something that called you out. You mentioned money, but there was something else that called you out to, to make the shift. Can you think of times where what you were expecting wasn't actually how it played out in the business? So I won't talk about the PE teaching transition to a initially, but I've invested in lots of different businesses along, along the way. Yep. And I've also had many different business partners. And one of the toughest lessons that I've learned along the way is getting into business with someone is like getting married. Mm -hmm. And before you get married, you should date. Mm -hmm. And you need to ensure that your values are aligned. Because if you get into business, it's really easy to get into business. Yep. 
Yep. It's super difficult to get out of business with somebody. Right. Particularly, same as a marriage, if there's animosity there. Right. And so I've been in and out of a couple of different business partnerships over the years and they have hurt me financially and then also emotionally right. because someone that you spend a lot of time with those people, literally more time than you spend with your family because mm-hmm. you spend more time working day to day. And can you think of ways that you've learned as a result of those painful experiences? Are there things you do differently now? Definitely. So I wouldn't jump into any sort of business partnership arrangement uh, until I'd known that person for many years, mm-hmm. say three plus. Mm-hmm. And then I would also plan on how we're going to break apart the business if things don't. On the way in. Yeah, on the way in. Right. Same with the marriage. Yep. So yep. you have a financial agreement which states that if this goes pear-shaped, we're going to conduct ourselves in this way. Right. So I would do the exact same thing. Hey, have you had an experience where that has worked for you or, or your businesses since then have been successful and you haven't had to exit? Yeah. So si- since I've learned these lessons, my business partners have been successful and we're still all in, in business together. Right. But also we spent a lot of time working through our values and then also making sure that people's skills within the business are complementary. Yeah. So if you have three people that are all gay salesmen getting out there and selling product, but there's no one actually working on the implementation or the delivery of the service or the trinket or whatever it is that you do, mm-hmm. then it falls apart. So having business partners that have skill sets that are complementary is foundationally important. It's a good point. Um, I think culture is probably the number one priority in any business, whether it's a client engagement, whether it's the people who you bring in to to the business, whether it's the people you work with as partners or suppliers or customers. Talk a bit about how you work to understand the cultural alignment of the people that you're working with. So we do a lot of personality testing with our staff. Yep. And we then try and get the staff into the correct role because we believe that everybody can play a significant role, very important role in any type of enterprise, Mm -hmm. but you can't put a square peg in a round hole. Sure. So if you go getting the really good sales guy, people person doing data analytics, mm-hmm. he's going to, he or she is going to hate their lives yep. and the, the, the product, what they're going to produce is going is not, is going to be substandard. So we do a lot of work around that. Yep. And then a lot of ongoing work around just asking uh, our staff, are you happy? And that's a very simple question, isn't it? And if you're not, what can we do mm-hmm. to, to improve that? Yeah. The other one I like to ask is what do you need from me? Yeah, because it, as our business has grown, the opportunity to do everything for everyone is not as available as it was, and so we spend a lot of time talking to the team about what is it you need. How can I help you better do your job? And I think that helps them understand that we really care about the way that they're going about their daily business and what are we doing that makes it difficult. I think also as an employer. You have a responsibility to be able to demonstrate to your employees that they're a very important stakeholder in this total enterprise. Sure. So the stakeholders are your clients, your investors, mm-hmm. and then also your staff. Yeah. And how do we all? How do we create an environment where it's win-win? The staff are winning. Yep. The stakeholders are the, well, the owners are winning, and then also our clients are winning. Yeah. And if you can get a mix where all three of those stakeholders are achieving their individual success, yes, then that is a very nice enterprise to be involved in. So how do you work with your team to understand their success criteria so you can work out how to have that aligned? So one of my biggest failings in life is staff management. So I have two business partners who excel at that. They are fantastic at managing staff, managing people. Yep. And they leave me to do my thing. Yep. And they manage all of the staff and they try and keep me away from staff management as much as possible because I am absolutely hopeless. (laughs) So that's an interesting thing. You talk about it being one of the biggest failures. In fact, I would suggest it's actually one of your biggest qualities is the the ability to recognize it's not your skill set and where you want to spend your energy. And often employers or, or different business partners will try and mold the way you are to fix your weaknesses. Talk a little bit about how your partners recognize that you in you that your strength is doing something else. Bless their souls. They've given up on me. <laughs> No, um, you have strengths and weaknesses Yeah, and yes, you should work on some of your weaknesses to make sure that they're not detrimental to what you do, Yeah, but realistically you should be focusing on your strengths and becoming absolutely the best in the world at those things Yeah, because it's much easier 
to do that because typically you love what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. You enjoy it. Yep. And you want to spend all your time in and around that area. Yep. So when you talk about, for example, myself, I love talking to people. I love meeting new people. I love mm -hmm. networking. I love finding out from families what it is that makes them tick. And then finding out where they are, where they want to go, and then working out how to make that happen. Yeah. That is what you can probably tell us what I'm Like, that's what turns me on. What lights me up. Literally your passion. When it comes to filling in forms, dealing with staff complaints, managing HR, that mm -hmm. stuff is tedious work that other people in my organization do. So I know how you should do that. Yeah. I just don't want to do it. Yeah, I think back to the early days of my professional career and, and the, the, the dread that I used to have when it came to appraisal season. And I knew that they were going to talk to me about the weaknesses that I needed to fix. And I, I never understood that concept of, why do you want me to fix a weakness? If I've got strengths, let's align that. So we, we spend a lot of time in our business trying to align people's strengths with the opportunities. And I think that's a lot more rewarding. And then as you say, it becomes more doing your job by other things you love rather than things you, you need to change. Look, we all need to do things that we don't like and that we don't enjoy. That's just part of being a human. Yep. But you should be spending 80% of your time on the big things in your life that is really going to move the needle. Uh, and we've just found in my enterprise that that's what I should be doing all the time. And that, that's typically what I do. Can you think back on any time where this concept of one of your fail biggest failures in life is people management. Where, what was that realization for you? Was it somebody or something pushed you in a way that you hadn't been pushed? It was just a quiet conversation that I had with my current business partners and they just sort of sat me down and they said, Matt, we know you love managing the team and trying to organize things and doing all this stuff, but it's not you. We want you doing this. So there's an example of being called out on something that they observed and having the courage to say, listen, Matt, your best skill set is in this direction. And this is why it's so important to surround yourself with people that you know, like, and trust, and yeah. then you respect their opinions. Yeah. Whether that be the partner that you choose to spend the rest of your life with, yeah. um, or your business partners, or your friends, but those sort of five to 10 people that you spend the most time with that know you the best, you need to really seek advice from them around these things and be willing to take it on board yeah. and action it. Interesting. So if you think of the mortgage transition and, and the things along the way, it sounds like those things that you were achieving were just fueling the fire and the passion inside for helping people. Correct. Talk a little bit more about that journey because clearly it's not easy. You, you mentioned that people are not exactly literate when it comes to financial strategy. So how do you bring them on that journey? How, how do you engage with them in a way that gets their buy-in to what you're saying. So all good salespeople take the complex and make it simple. Okay. And we have a very structured sales process that takes people through a discovery session. Yep. So this is where we get to know who the client is, mm -hmm. what makes them tick. And they also get to know a little bit more about myself, about how I do things. And then a lot of the teaching that I do or the sort of onboarding is all around drawing. Drawing pictures. Okay. You have this, you want to get here. We're going to do ABC to get there. And it's literally all of my work is done in PowerPoint and drawing because humans, if they can see it and they, and you're talking to them about it, yep. it's hitting two of their instincts and they're just going to have a better understanding of it. And just nice, simple imagery tells a thousand words. Yeah. Fascinating. And, and it's always about showing value. Yep. So the biggest issue is I think about 20% of Australians actually seek financial advice. And Only 20%. It's probably even less. Right. And the main driver behind that is just cost and then value. Mm -hmm. So financial advice is really, it's super important for people in their 20s and early 30s to get everything just set up. Mm -hmm. So the foundation of your financial household should yep. be sort of structured in a certain way. So that you know that you're putting money into all the right buckets, which is going to get to you where you need to be. Because your 30s is really where the beginning part, you've sort of sorted out where you are, who you are, and you've got your career going. And you should sort of start to have some surplus capital coming or income coming through and capital to invest. Then your 30s, you're really building the foundation then 
for you to then capitalize that in your 40s and 50s. And then by 60, 65, you want to be wrapping it up. So you have, you've got sort of a four, 30 to 40 year period to accumulate enough money, wealth, for you to then be able to draw down on that from 60 to maybe 120. Yeah. People who are 30 or 40 today, you're probably going to live to 120, maybe 150. Mm. So you could potentially spend more time in retirement than you do in actually accumulating funds. Right. Now, when the superannuation industry was created, most the most people only lived until 68. So they okay. said, you work till 65, we'll pay your pension, and then three years later, you fall off the perch. Great, that system was excellent. Then we started living to 95. Yep. And then that broke the superannuation sort of system and they changed things up. So that, that's why people need to really start to have more of a focus on it at a younger age. Yeah, interesting. So in the journey of entrepreneurship, if that's what we call it, can you think of a time that was a devastating failure and, and what you did as a result of that? Or what did that process look like from the recognition of failure through to the point of the outcome? I think one of the biggest mistakes that I've made and a lot of entrepreneurs make is being too distracted and doing trying to do too many things. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is not sticking to their core business. So if you're a mortgage broker or financial advisor, mm -hmm. you should only do that. Right. And when you have that enterprise up and running and it's fully functioning without you doing anything in it, yep. then you can potentially look at doing something else. In my 30s, I tried to do everything. Okay. I invested in fish farms. I tried to run coffee shops. I imported coffee from overseas. I literally tried- Any business. I nearly every business. But it was these were like side hustles off my core business because I was- quite successful doing mortgage broking, quite successful yep. doing financial advisory work, like award-winning business. And I was taking those surplus profits and then trying to then 10, 100 exit in these other things. Right. Where what I should have just done was simply kept writing loans and doing financial planning and then built a team around me to then, that, so for that business to then thrive. Right. Whether I worked or whether I didn't work. And then, so that's what we've been doing for the last five years. Right. So almost to the point of overstretching and then nothing had your full focus. Correct. Just scattergun approach to try to do too many things. And can you think of one of those business ventures where you were really sort of torn apart that it didn't work? Uh, torn apart that all of them didn't work. That's my... <laughs> Lost money in all of them. Oh, look, the coffee venture was really disappointing because yeah. we had started distributing coffee throughout Australia and then through some of the Pacific Islands. And then our copy wholesaler ripped us off. Um, literally, we were paying for product and they just wouldn't ship it. And we're like, what is going on? Wow. Um, and then so that business, because we didn't control it, so that, because we didn't control it from start to finish, yep. I learned a very important lesson. And that was? You should, if you're running any type of enterprise, you need to control every part of that business. And then also be careful who you're getting business with. Right. Because really look into who they are and what they've done previously to make sure that if you're a retailer or if you're running a certain area in, in the world, then the wholesale or the person that you're dealing with is of high value moral. And, and do you think it, it, that experience, the coffee experience or people in the supply chain who impacted your success ultimately, do you think that changed you and the, the approach or do you still have that willingness and courage to get out there and back yourself? Definitely I would back myself, but what I, what I do now is I'm much more cautious who I jump into bed with. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is before we commit capital or time, mm -hmm. we want to spend, well, I'm happy to spend a lot more time with people to really get to know them and understand who they are and what they stand for before then setting up a whole business around this particular person doing the one thing that you need them to do, i.e. Right. I pay you for a product and you send it to me so I can distribute it to my clients. Right, right. You can do all the later bit perfectly, but if that one bit doesn't work, the entire enterprise pay it falls apart. Yeah, interesting. So as an investor, I haven't sat so much on the investor side of, of the transaction. I've had people invest in me and the business that we're working in. What are some of the things that you look at from an evaluation perspective related to people and perhaps their experience or their failures or that you have any conversations about their experiences in the journey and, and what they've learned so far? So as an investor in unlisted 
businesses, for example? There's sort of two areas that you look at. You've got the sort of startup area where you're really looking at what's the future potential cash flows that we can generate in this type of business. We do a fair bit of that type of investing, mm -hmm. but we also like to insinuate ourselves into that enterprise so that we have some semblance of control as well. And so what I mean by that is if we're going to invest in an early stage startup, then we want to be in there assisting, managing the accounting, managing the financial management, and then also helping with the strategy mm -hmm. so that we are intimately involved in the running of one of the most important parts of any business, the cash flow. Right. If we're looking at investing in, say, small to medium enterprise, businesses turning over, say, $5, $10 million with sort of 30% profit, the main thing that we're looking at there is we're looking for who are the principals? Yeah? Why are they either looking to raise money to grow or why are they looking to exit? Yeah. And then do we really want to be working with those people long-term? And you can basically manage a, or you can value a business on net profit yep. on a multiple, mm -hmm. or you can value a business on net assets. So if you think of like a real estate business, for example, you look at the rent roll. Yep. Um, if you're looking at a manufacturing business, you probably want to be looking at like stock, machinery, and then all yep. profit. Mm -hmm. So each individual business, you need to have your own methodology as to how you're going to value those. Mm -hmm. And the ones that I like the best are with recurring income. So I really like financial services businesses, mm -hmm. accountancy firms, yep. financial planning firms, mortgage broking firms, because typically who pays you, they're the big end of town. You never have to worry about collecting your pay. If you're a carpenter, one of your biggest roles is to make sure that whoever you build for is going to pay you Yep. because you've got to have all this financial outlay up front to then get paid. And that's actually what's decimated the construction industry just recently because yeah. so many builders went into contracts and then those subcontractors never get paid by the ultimate contract holders because then they didn't get paid by the developer right. because the whole thing's gone under. Yep. And that has a flow on effect flow through effect the system. The and that's what's driving, I guess, the undersupply of property in the current market now. Yeah. So cash flow, you mentioned it. It's, uh, I think it's the number one, two, and three priorities that any small business needs to understand is we had a, a guest on one of the first podcasts talk about he measured $5. He knew when his next $5 was coming in because that's what he needed to, to move on. How do you see that play out in small businesses or the ones you invest in? Is that something you spend a lot of time teaching the entrepreneurs? Yeah. So talk about it. Yeah, well, any new time entrepreneurs that are thinking about starting a business that don't have an accountancy background or really don't have an understanding of finance, I recommend that they be, read a book called Profit First. Okay. And that book breaks down bookkeeping and financial management yep. for the novice. Yep. And it's really just a matter of you understanding that when a dollar hits your business, how you then allocate that dollar across the multiple facets of the enterprise. Mm -hmm. So certain portion should go to profit. Yep. Hopefully. Yep. Certain portion needs to go to tax. Yep. A certain portion needs to go to operational expenses. And a certain portion should go to owner's equity or how the owner is going to get paid. Yep. And if you know what those numbers are, as well as like marketing, then you should know that every dollar that you spend in client acquisition is going to generate $3 in gross revenue. And that $3 then gets broken down into those separate areas. And what a lot of small businesses do is they do what we call bank account bookkeeping or cash flow management. Yep. I've got a hundred grand in the bank. I've got a hundred grand to spend. Oops. Bass comes around. I've got PAYG and super. Mm -hmm. I don't have a hundred grand. I actually owe $75,000 in, in taxes. Right. Right. And oh, too many small businesses get caught with that. And also they're just really underfunded. Yep. You really want to have six to 12 months worth of fixed expenses in a bank account to run your enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good transition into the talk about uh, accurate financial information and, and bookkeeping. You mentioned you started out as a teacher doing bookkeeping. You saw the financials. How have you embraced outsourcing or, or bookkeeping by the experts in the businesses that you work with? Yeah, so within your corner, we're a group of accountants, financial advisors, mortgage brokers, and lawyers. Mm -hmm. So we're like a bit of a family office for the entrepreneur. Yep. They can come to us and say, I run a electrical business, an electrician, and I want to, I've got 30 staff and we're trying to take it to 150 staff. Okay, great. Do you know your numbers? Yep. Most of them go, yeah, I've got money in the bank. So what we do is we basically build out a whole finance structure and reporting system so that that entrepreneur or that business owner knows 
daily, weekly, where things are at. And having timely and accurate bookkeeping then flows into financial reporting. Yep. That's the data that you can then make better decisions on what you're going to do with your business. So that's the lifeblood, like we mentioned before, of every business. And that's a big part of what Your Corner does with young entrepreneurs is actually help them manage all of that. And then we go a step further where we go and look at the actual financial accounting as well. So the accounting around like how long does it take you to produce a certain widget or service? Mm -hmm. And then making sure that your pricing model is accurate because I think a lot of small businesses also don't really understand how to price what they do because they don't really know what it costs them to produce that, particularly with services. Yeah, unpacking those layers of cost and understanding how it all comes together. You mentioned you've got to price in profit. It's not something you should be ashamed of. You've got to price that profit in. You've got to price in the return to stakeholders. You've got to price in the, the cost of goods. So by bringing that or breaking it down into the fundamental levers helps business owners understand the journey to success. If you don't want to make profit, just go get a job. Most people are proficient technicians in whatever it is that they do. They're an architect. They could go be earning 100, 200 grand being an architect working for a big firm. Yeah. Right, just go do that. There's no stress. When you leave work at 6.30, you yep. go home, your weekend and your life is yours. Yep. When you're an entrepreneur and you start an architectural firm, yep. your life is not yours on the weekend. Your business owns you. Yep. Yep. For, first, for, the, for the first couple of years anyway, until you are building up all those systems and processes and client base to actually generate that revenue so that you can have other people doing other tasks. But when you first start, you're wearing all the hats. And at 11 o'clock at night, you're trying to do your bank recon and it doesn't work and so finding the right partners in the journey is important. I think what's really important also is working out what your hourly rate is. So if your hourly rate's $100 yep. and that's what you personally produce as the, the entrepreneur, then anything that you're spending your time on that you can pay someone else to do for less than $100, you should be outsourcing immediately. Agreed. If you don't have enough capital to be able to do that, bring in investors or start as a side hustle first. Yeah. Um, too many people are trying to do bookkeeping on a Friday night, which they hate, yep. which they do incorrectly. The accountant needs to fix at the end of the year anyway. So that forces the price up, again, with getting the work reworked at the end of the financial year. Correct. Rather than outsourcing that or utilizing someone who's skilled and loves doing bookkeeping to yep. do that work. It's a, it goes back to aligning strengths and skills with the work that needs to be done. And I think... My observation is that often entrepreneurs or people who go into business don't value their time. They're willing to give up family time to do the bookkeeping. They're willing to give up, and they don't think about it in this concept of my time's 100 bucks an hour. If I pay less than that, I'm ahead of the game because I'm getting the free time back. I think also a lot of small business owners like the dream of being an entrepreneur, like the dream of having all this free time, but then when they get into it, yeah. They realize that, hang on a second, I left my $150,000 salary and my net profit in my business now $35,000. Yep. Yep. I'm $115,000 behind, but they also have this willingness, so I can't give up. So I want to continue to grow this. And that's okay if that's your number one and you're growing. But if you don't have a pathway to actually be making more money, like that 150 should be paid to you regardless. Yep. Yep. So talk about the concept of Bookkeeping versus information. Bookkeeping versus information. So what do you call or, or compliance driven bookkeeping? So, you know, the purpose of bookkeeping is to get my BAS done on time or is to make sure that, you know, my bank is reconciled versus information that is an outcome of that process that you use in the business. Yeah. So bookkeeping is really just a, a task of allocation of income and expenses into line items in a profit and loss mm -hmm. and or balance that flow across into the balance sheet and income statement. Yep. So bookkeeping is not a very high level, I guess, task that needs to be done, but it has to be done accurately because if you misallocate income or an expense, then you don't have the correct information or data to be able to make informed decisions on what you're going to do. Information in, in a business is, is vital because that's what gives you the edge. So if there's something that you know about your target market or your client yep. better than your competitors, then that's your competitive advantage and you should leverage that. Yep. The information that accurate and timely bookkeeping provides to you is 
how is my business traveling? It's like going to your GP and, and getting a health check. Yep. If you don't know what's going on, yep. then how can you make accurate decisions about employing more people, how much you can spend on marketing, or if you're going to be profitable this, this financial year? Yeah. Can you think of an example where the bookkeeper you had said, yep, bank's reckon, it's all done, but the information that was the outcome led you on a different path? It's not until we got into the really having a look at the numbers and trying to work out which, so in our actual business, work out which type of client was most profitable. So we found that people that run- but every client's profitable. They're bringing you revenue. How could they possibly not be profitable, right? That is an inaccurate statement. <laughs> this is another thing that, that's also very important for, for a business owner to know, particularly if you're delivering a service. Yep. Um, is your activity actually profitable? Now, yes, we all do work for future gains. And what I mean by that is particularly in the financial services industry, you might have a client that comes in and says, oh, I need to just refinance a $100,000 home loan onto a lower rate. And you go, okay, there's not really a lot of profit in that. You're actually going to lose money by processing that transaction. But that same client might also then go and buy an investment property. And then you've got a $900,000 loan that comes out of that particular transaction. So you've got to balance those two things. But if you focus on doing $100,000 refinances, you're going to go out of business very quickly because it's just not a, a profitable task. Same with Unfortunately, with financial advice and that industry as well, dealing with millennials or the younger generation that don't necessarily have a lot of wealth, they can't afford to be paying five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars in ongoing fees to financial advisors. It's really difficult to deliver an ongoing service to them. So, how do we best serve those those yeah. clients? Yep. With a view that one day they will be in their forties mm. and have the wealth that is going to enable them to be a profitable client for you. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the the uh, the Jack Welsh approach also applies to clients, right? Which ones are the ones who are taking a lot more of my time without delivering the, the revenue or the value that we need in in order to move the business forward? Yeah, definitely. And just you've got to know your numbers, mm -hmm. and you've got to then be able to break them down yep. into the micro in terms of like each client. Particularly if you're delivering like an ongoing service, you need to really understand what it costs you to deliver that. So in your business, without giving away secrets, what are the three levers that you use to measure the performance of your business? Uh, how many referrals are coming in, mm -hmm. conversion of those into clients, yep. and then ultimately profitability. So we know our numbers. So and you can, you can tell out of all of your clients what profit you're generating from each one of them. Correct. Yeah. So we know that we're making, well, we won't take on a client unless we're making 25%. So you have a benchmark and everybody owns that. Correct. But also our business is very different because we don't just do one thing. Mm -hmm. So in financial advice, you just provide financial advice. As a mortgage broker, you just provide mortgage broking. As an accounting firm, you just provide accounting. Yep. We typically deal with entrepreneurs who are running their enterprise. Mm -hmm. We do all of their bookkeeping, financial reporting, and accounting in there. We increase our profitability in that firm. We then drive those profits into a wealth creation strategy through the financial advice that we provide. We then provide legal services in terms of conveyancing, contracts, staff engagement, staff contracts, all the business contracts that you need there. Yep. And then mortgage broking, if they need debt, then we provide that as well. So for us, we're not just have one revenue stream of one particular client. We have typically four revenue streams coming in, but each of those businesses are profitable in their own right. Right. And it was an example of what you were talking about earlier where you want to own that full chain because your ability to influence the entire picture is enhanced by having each of the elements. You know the accounting is going to be done accurately. You know the advice that then you're going to give based on that information so you can roll it up. I also got uh, really annoyed at arguing with accountants about my tax planning strategies. I really got, I also got really annoyed with them not having timely information. So as a financial advisor, trying to produce cash flow or strategies around how we allocate capital. If we don't know the profitability of a business in April, May of the current financial year, right? how are we going to allocate capital into the most tax effective structures or tax effective places? There's no point doing your accounting, or your tax planning in the year following the financial year. Right. 
unfortunately, most accountants are historians. Mm -hmm. They look at yep. what happened in the past. They summarize that for you and they give it back to you in a tax return. We have a very proactive approach. We're doing tax planning on a quarterly basis mm -hmm. when we're delivering the bass so that we know where we're going and where our profits are. And we're sitting down in that April, May, because we, in the business, the, if you don't know what's going to happen in your business in the next four weeks, then you're not, you don't have your finger on the pulse. So in by mid-May, we know exactly what revenue is going to be coming through in the next six weeks and what's going to, the profits are going to be in the business and what we're going to then do with those to keep as much of our hard work as we can. Interesting. Control the revenue stream. What's the number one challenge you face in day-to-day -day business? Growing pains. Finding the right people to do the right job and systems and processes. So as you grow, the more and more people that you have in your enterprise, things start to break. Yep. And then building the tiering of management to people doing the actual work throughout that process. So how have you learned that lesson in terms of managing? You've clearly got demand on one side and pushing supply to get to that point creates pressure. Yep. How, how do you manage that? So as an entrepreneur, I prefer to die of feast rather than famine. Mm -hmm. So yep. we just work harder. <laughs> That's one part of, of how we get through that in terms of, unfortunately in our business, it's sort of, there's no just, it's a consistent flow of work. Mm -hmm. We'll just do... Wouldn't like being a podcast. Yeah, it would be great. You know, I might do a podcast or a vlog, which might really hit with a certain group of people. And then I'll then get an inflow of work that needs to then be done. Right. So it's just a matter for us of then managing that through the ebbs and flows of a financial year. But for us, yeah, it's typically the next two weeks is pretty much all the work that we're going to do for this year. And we're pretty much a wrap until Australia Day. Okay. No one wants to talk about financial planning 3rd of January. Right. Interesting. So you can then plan and resource allocate on that basis. Correct. So this is a time where we sit down and we review through the year. What did we break? Where, where did we really make a mistake? And what can we do differently? And how do we fix that? Right. Um, or how do we then mitigate that issue so that when it happens again, because history repeats itself, yep. we don't fall uh, to the same issue. And and so there's an example of, of using those breaks or failures to try and understand how you can improve the processes to make sure you don't end up there again. And look, and I've been blessed. Um, my business partners are amazing. They are super smart, super passionate. And then all of our highest value is the customer achieving their goals. Yep. So when you have people who are driven by their clients achieving success and the ultimate outcome of the business is to serve them, mm -hmm. you're gonna win. Yep. You just yep. gotta make sure you've got the right team in place doing the right job so that you can win. Yeah, it's an interesting concept of, you know, my success is determined by other people's success. Those people that I can help improve the quality of their life means that the reward for me is more than what I can buy with money. It's the main difference between whether you're delivering a good or, or a service. If you're really delivering a service, then you are improving people's life, yeah. lives through that service delivery. So you need to have a really different way of thinking about that and a genuine concern for people's well-being and the ultimate outcome is that they achieve the success that they want yeah yeah it's a i think it's a guiding principle for what i do uh, with our team and with our clients is make sure that uh, we listen and we we try and help them figure out solutions you mentioned earlier that your number one family man how do you find or how do you balance the demands of family and business and what do you do to help with that potential conflict. So I have a really interesting story around that. When I first got married, we had a baby straight away and my enterprise was growing quite rapidly at that particular point. So I was 32, 33 and everything was fantastic, but I wasn't happy. There was like something missing in my life. Mm. I had the perfect wife, son, mm. business, everything from the outside looked amazing, but I'd had a hole, yeah. something missing in my life. And I was recommended to go and see like a, like a life coach or like a, a business coach. Yep. And, um, she sat down with me and she sort of said, okay, explain to me what your values are. And I was like, oh, I'm a family, success, education, friends, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, okay, show me your diary. I showed her my diary, working six days, six days a week, you know, half day Sundays because you never stop working. And then I have this small time Sunday afternoons where I spend with my family. And she's like, well, I can tell you why you're not happy because you're living incongruently to your values. 
And I was like, wow. <laughs> what an insight. I was like, wow. I literally, like my head exploded. Yeah. And I was like, that is so interesting. And I'm like, well, I control my diary. Yeah. I literally went home that weekend and I sat down with my, with my wife, Clyde, and I said, what does Orlando do, you know, Monday through Friday that I can be a participant in? So I was taking him to like Kitty's gym, yeah. taking him to um, swimming lessons and doing all these little things with him in the middle of my day, which then actually breaks up my working day, but then I'm also spending one-on-one -on -one time with my son and then also just making sure that I have dates with my wife. So making sure that I'm checking in with her yep. every week, every fortnight, and just us spending quality time mm -hmm. where it's just us connecting and making sure that the, you keep that fire burning in, in, in the home, in the marriage. That is vitally important to any entrepreneur's success long-term because you can build the most successful business in the world. You can have all the money in the world. But for me, if you don't have family, yep. if you aren't supporting people that you love and cherish the most, not just financially, but emotionally and, and making sure that they're achieving their goals, they're living their best lives. Yep. Then are you really being the best father and husband? And I think in society, if a lot more people focused on that, we would all be a lot happier and society would be a lot better for it. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly some good tips in there for sure. And often, you know, I talk to many small business owners and they are the ones that are awake at three in the morning worrying about where's my cash flow for payroll or, you know, others, employees want to have their peace and, and it can get quite lonely as, as the leader of a business. How do you manage that? Do you have a network of people you call on or, or how do you help yourself in that, those moments where you're like facing something that seems yeah. real? So again, I've been really fortunate to, in my early twenties to have met a lot of entrepreneurs or people who were growing a business at the same time that I was. Yeah. And we've all sort of grown up together and built really successful businesses. And then also the role that I play in my work, I also spend a lot of time with business owners, mm -hmm. troubleshooting the problems that are happening in their business life and in their personal life. Right. So I, a lot of my really close friends are actually people that are also clients or people that I, that I work with. Yep. So that's sort of my sounding board mm -hmm. that I have. And I know that if I ever have an issue or a problem, I have a great network of people that I can go to and say, Hey, this is what's happening. This is what I'm thinking about doing. Where, what am I not seeing? Right. What have I not analyzed? Mm -hmm. What am I, what have I missed? And they love telling me all the things I've missed. <laughs> <laughs> Having a network of truth tellers is, is a good thing. It's paramount. Yeah. And look, yeah. I think also men view the world in a certain way. Mm -hmm. When I started talking to my wife and really asking her about, Hey, what do you think about this particular person? Mm -hmm. What do you think about this particular idea of business that we're going into? What do you think about this particular investment, this type of yep. business? She views the world through a completely different set of eyes. Interesting. And also when it comes to people, she sees things that I don't see. Mm -hmm. And so when I really started sort of tapping into that, say feminine energy yep. to get feedback on decisions that I've been making in my business, it's been fantastic yep. because that outside view, look, look, Cloudy and I are very aligned in the way we want to live our lives mm -hmm. and in the values that we have married yeah so hopefully hopefully yep. you've got that connection yeah so that just that other viewpoint has made us saved us yeah many many times so thinking about one of those moments with orlando you're at the kitty play gym or whatever and something is distracting you from being in that moment how do you catch yourself to say no this is my time that's important we're just going to turn your phone off right so when we sat down today yep we put our phones on airplane mode, we did everything on silent, and then we sat and we're engaged. Yep. And regardless of what's happening around the world around us, mm -hmm. it's going to be okay. Yep. 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 So that's, that's an important thing to remember. We're not here with somebody sick and surgery. Like we've got a team of people who can take care of that noise or that work while we're here having this moment. And I think that's probably a big tip or technique of of really being present in, in the moment. In the early days when you're doing everything, it's one of the most difficult things to do is be able to like- I still fall into the trap. To, to switch off, yeah. Yep. But it's so vitally important that you are able to do that because you need to have downtime. Mm -hmm. And there's no point being home for dinner yep. if you sit on your mobile phone entering emails. Yep. 
that's precious time that you have with your children and partner that you should be engaging with them. Another thing, yeah, I think that I find most interesting is spending time with your children in the car. Like when do you get to have this one-on-one time where they're absolutely captured by you? Mm -hmm. So turn the podcast off, turn the music down, talk to your children. Interesting. Engage with them, play a game. Yep. My kids and I have got this game where we spot different colored cars yep. and whoever can spot the most cars, it's like depending on the, the color of the car, the rarity, then you yep. score more points. And then every driver that we have, we're always yelling out, there's a red car, there's a yellow car. And we're talking about that at the back of that. So we're having fun. Yeah. And on the back of that, I can be asking them, so how's that thing happening at school with that bully? Right. What's happening there? Engage in a different way. How are you enjoying jujitsu? Are you, how's, how's that new move that you're mm. learning? Well, it's been a great conversation. If Is there any one tip you could, when you're meeting an investee for the first time, do you do you have any one thing you talk about uh, in, in helping them on their journey? An investee? So someone, someone who you're putting money to work with, who you, you've decided that you want to back them financially because yep. they've got the whatever it takes to step up and make it. Is there any one tip or any three things that you would tell them now that you're in, in investment partnership? Yeah. So the key thing that I look for is their vision and strategy. Yep. And then whether I think they can actually execute. Right. That's the key thing that and, I, and that I want to say. Keep them focused on that. And keep them focused. <laughs> Very good, Matt. I've enjoyed the conversation. Uh, where could people find you if they want to learn more about uh, Corner360? Yep. So we're on YouTube. So Finsight for Wealth is our YouTube channel where I'm teaching all things finance and property with my co-host, Nathan Moss. Uh, our website is yc360.com.au or follow me on Instagram, Matthew Brown underscore T-R-I. I'm sure oh, there'll be notes in the... Yeah. We'll put the notes up on the podcast. Well, thank you for, again for the time. Some great insights. Really appreciate the candid conversation. Thanks so much. Have all the days. I'm Chris Kendall, and you've been listening to the Anti-Failure Podcast. If you or anybody you know has an interesting story that you would like to tell, head over to our website, aratex.com.au, and look for the Anti-Failure Podcast page. 